0: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of
1: Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Angie, and today we'll, we will be talking all about frogs and frog conservation. And I'm so excited to be hosting an expert amphibian biologist, Dr. Carrie Krieger, who is the founder of Save the Frogs. And Save the Frogs is an organization that is the world's most effective. Amphibian Conservation Organization. So we're going to get to hear lots of stories today about what's happening with frogs and their conservation and how we can help them. So Dr. Krieger, are you there?
0: Hi, I'm here. Great to be here, Angie, and I'm looking forward to talking about frogs and how everyone out there can help save them.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be having this conversation. I've been a big fan of your organization for years now, and we finally get to connect. And I'm here in Florida, but you're in Costa Rica, so I must say I'm pretty envious of you because it's one of my favorite places in the whole world. I, I always joke that if I ever ran away, that my secret hideout would be on the Western Coast, Manuel Antonio. But I guess I just announced it on air, so it's not really a secret. But anyways, it's one of my favorite uh, places in Costa Rica, for sure, if not the world. Well, I'm actually
0: just north of there right now on the Pacific coast, and there are frogs in my backyard here. And Costa Rica, yeah, I mean, it's a great place for anyone who's into nature and wildlife, and especially amphibians, because there's uh, incredible biodiversity here. And if you go out on... Certainly a rainy night, you're you're gonna find a lot of frogs.
1: Oh, that's so awesome. So as we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Yeah, I am Save the Frogs founder and executive director, Dr. Carrie Krieger, and I have been full-time in the world of amphibian conservation for about 18 years. And Yeah, I grew up in Virginia, east coast of the USA, and I never had a frog fascination when I was young, but my parents built a pond on the property when I was young, and I spent a lot of time down there, mostly just fishing and hanging out, but I would definitely see some frogs, and at night, I would hear them calling for certain, even from my bedroom if I had the door open, so uh, I guess this is a good time just to make a frog call, (whistles) A gray tree frog. So I'd be sleeping at night, and I'd hear the sounds of frogs calling. So I think that that went deep into my subconscious. So it actually was a long time before my love of frogs emerged. I I was always into science, but I never had, I never took much biology, and I actually studied mechanical engineering. I got a undergraduate degree, bachelor's of science, mechanical engineering from the University of Virginia. And towards the end of that degree, I realized that I was much more into being outside in nature and started to um, get interested in environmental conservation and protection. And when I finished my degree, I spent a long time traveling around the world, backpacking and visiting national parks. And I saw a lot of habitat destruction and I wanted to do something about that. And so I ended up volunteering in hawaii studying endangered birds for a summer and hanging out with phd students doing research and just seeing what they did and that definitely um i was certain from that experience i wanted to do that professionally and about that time i found out frogs were rapidly disappearing and i really like hanging out at streams and the thought hit me hey i could hang out at streams study frogs do something good for the planet and ended up going to Australia for four years and did my PhD research in, in Gold Coast, southeast Queensland, Australia at Griffith University. And that's a great place for frogs. There's about 30 amphibian species in the vicinity, lots of rainforest, a really great network of amphibian biologists throughout Australia. And I learned a lot about amphibians, and my focus was on chytridiomycosis, which is a disease of amphibians that co- that's that been causing extinctions in, Austra- in Australia and around the world. And I learned a lot about amphibians, came back to the United States, realized that amphibians were not uh, being saved, or not to the extent that they needed for certain, and that there was not a lot getting done outside of academia, specifically with dealing with politicians, getting political support, getting corporations involved, getting the public educated. That was definitely the number one thing that I saw was missing was the public awareness. So I started Save the Frogs in 2008. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more in depth during this podcast.
1: Oh, yes, I can't wait. And just hearing your frog call, first of all, awesome job. I love when people do animal vocalizations on this podcast. It's some of my favorite. All right. Ones, I'll, so. I'll do some more. Yes, please. I you, I really appreciate it. Well, and for me, Dr. Krieger, when I step outside my door right now, it's the evening time here in Florida. It is like a chorus, just a beautiful, beautiful chorus of amphibians and it makes me excited and I'm helping teach my young boys about the different calls. And I'm not that good. So I would, I would love to have you on, on standby from now on <laughs> to help us. But frogs and amphibians have always interested me and my boys as well. But for somebody listening to the podcast that might just think, ew, frogs or why frogs? What would you tell them to get them excited about frogs and why we should care about frog conservation?
0: Yeah. A lot of people don't know that frogs are disappearing. And even if they find out that they are, a lot of people do say, why frogs? Why should people care about frogs? Uh, Why should we work to protect amphibians? And they're important for a lot of reasons. They're an integral part of the food web. So they're consuming ticks, flies, mosquitoes, and disease vectors that, so the frogs are helping to keep us healthy. They're also eating pests of agriculture, like um, pest species that damage agricultural crops. So they're helping our food supply. Tadpoles are eating algae and they're keeping the water clean. They're helping our community water filtration systems, lowering the cost for us to get water. Most people in cities have to actually pay to have water. So they're doing some work for us. And they're food for birds, fish, snakes, monkeys, dragonflies. A lot of animals eat frogs, and if frogs disappear, those animals can disappear too. Frogs are bioindicators, so they're telling us when something is wrong in the environment. They've got permeable skin that can absorb the pollutants and pesticides easily. They're not fast to move to a new location like If a forest got chopped down, a bird could potentially fly off easily. But frogs, if something happens to their habitat, they've got some problems. And also, most amphibians are dependent on water and land. So if something goes wrong with either, then they can have trouble. So they're one of the first um, species that will disappear or decline in numbers if something's wrong with the environment. And also, a lot of our medical advances come from research on amphibians about 10% of nobel prizes in physiology and medicine have gone to researchers whose work depended on amphibians so if an amphibian yeah if an amphibian species disappears there goes our chance to benefit ourselves from the existence of that species and yeah. frog frogs are cool like i like frogs most kids like frogs uh, a lot of people like frogs so the world is just a more interesting place to be with frogs.
1: I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. And that leads me into my next question. Can you give us a little bit of a background about amphibian populations in general, their numbers, and how they're trending?
0: Okay, I'll do that. Before I do, there's one more reason we should care about frogs or work to protect them, is that they have an inherent right to exist. Amphibians have been here for hundreds of millions of years. I think the best estimate is 360 million years. So they've been here a lot longer than we have. So just our ethical, moral stance should be, hey, they've been here. Humans are responsible, as I'll get into, for a lot of the disappearances. So it's our job to protect them. So what is happening with the amphibians? The amphibians are the most rapidly disappearing group of vertebrates. So about a third of amphibian species are threatened with extinction, which means that if we don't do anything to remove the threats they face, we can expect them to disappear in the near future. So they're more threatened than birds, fish, reptiles. And in the last 40 years or so, about 200 species have completely disappeared. So their, their extinction rate is several thousand times what we what we expect it to be based on the fossil record. So they're rapidly disappearing. And it's not just happening in one part of the world. It's happening worldwide. It, there's different reasons in different places in the world, but pretty much everywhere that amphibians are, there are significant threats to amphibians.
1: And you mentioned the fungus earlier on. How do you pronounce it?
0: Well, let's see. It's scientific name, Batrachochytrium dendrobatitis more commonly known as the chytrid fungus or the amphibian chytrid fungus there's there's actually a second batrachochytrium more recently discovered which is species of salamandra vorans so um, we can just call them chytrid some people call it b d but i think that's a um serious uh, degradation of the name to the... yeah because i actually i think it's important because it's important to not call it that because I actually, I'm involved in a a governor, a governmental stakeholder group, and the guy leading that group, which has all to do with amphibians, he didn't realize that BD was a chytrid fungus, just because he's used to hearing BD, BD, and he didn't make the connection, and that struck me as, hey, we've got people tasked to deal with the problem who don't even know that it is a chytrid fungus, so it just seems like, hey... So a- anyway, the the kit ch- uh, we'll just call it the kitrid fungus from now on. Call it call it something better yeah, than that. Yeah, kitrid's so,
1: not that hard. Kitrid's easier than the scientific name.
0: A- and it it gives a bit more info, kitrid. The kitrid fungus is the most serious threat to frogs and amphibians in general that live in high mountain or or mountains around the world, montane amphibian species. And that's primarily because in the mountains it tends to be cool and moist and the chytrid fungus does really well living in cool moist conditions if it gets too hot specifically above about 28 celsius then it can die or it won't it won't reproduce generally speaking so hot places usually don't have a problem with chytrid fungus it may be there it may be found on amphibians but it's usually not causing problems whereas places that are about 15 degrees celsius or somewhere like from the around 50 fahrenheit or so moist places pacific northwest of the usa in the in in costa rica up in the mountains costa rica is tropical it's hot in general but there's some big mountains and once you get up a couple thousand meters it's cooling off and that's perfect place for chytrid to cause damage to amphibians so around the world in mountainous areas the number one threat to amphibians has been the chytrid fungus.
1: And now, does that have anything to do with humans or our encroachment or climate well, change?
0: the sig- The most significant factor is that humans ship about a hundred million amphibians around the world each year. And as we've seen with COVID, when you move things around or when you move organisms around the world, their diseases spread. And that can be very fast, just like COVID got around the world really fast. So we're shipping all these amphibians for, for pet trade, food trade, bait, laboratory usage. Let's see, one, one other reason. Food is, food is probably the biggest, but pet trade also, probably back decades ago, laboratory. Oh, and zoos as well. So we've got these five main um, reasons that amphibians are being shipped around the world. And there's, in most countries, there's not any kind of quarantine or disease controls. New Zealand and Australia, there are. You can't easily get an amphibian into those countries because they know the damage firsthand that happens when invasive species get to their country. So they did something about it. But most other countries, you want to import an amphibian, it's not that hard. And you want to import a chytrid-infected amphibian, probably not that hard either probably there's probably a million chytrid infected amphibians getting into California every year. So, let's see. We we've got this huge international trade in amphibians and not much being done to ensure that they're not infected. And then so if a infected amphibian gets loose or gets set free cuz some people just let their amphibian go they don't know any better and it goes out into the wild. Chytrid does a really good job of surviving in a lot of different microclimates, a lot of different habitats. And some of of the most invasive amphibian species, specifically American bullfrogs, they can host millions of chytrid zoospores on their skin and not die. So we've got this species that's the number one frog farmed for food around the world. They're being shipped all around the world. And They're held in very close conditions. They may be, and I've got a video of a pond somewhere in Asia or a a frog farming facility with several ponds. And there must be hundreds of thousands of frogs that you can see in the video, just in these ponds. They're just on top of each other. And they arrive in some places in live markets. Even in America, they're in buckets with like 30 bullfrogs in one bucket crawling all over each other. Kytrid. Uh, chytridiomycosis the disease caused by the chytrid fungus. It's a skin disease and it's got waterborne zoospores. So these frogs are in the water touching each other. They're spreading their diseases to each other. And most of those frogs are infected. So that's probably the primary reason how the fungus has gotten around the world. And once it gets to a place, it can travel it can travel just a frog jumping around. Or the frog travels to a different catchment or the zoospores are in the stream. stream. Stream dwellers are the most impacted. And that's probably because streams tend to be cooler than ponds. And streams are also able to carry whatever's in the stream for a long distance.
1: And now, Dr. Krieger, you mentioned that like the American bullfrog doesn't seem to be too impacted by the infection but several other species are. And so how does that work?
0: Yeah, there's different reasons. There's frogs that, frogs have different microflora. The, the bacteria and other microorganisms on their skin are different. The chemicals that they naturally have for immunity to kill whatever's on their skin differ species to species. And then frogs have different habits and different lifestyles. Some frogs live they, they don't mind being in the direct sun. Some frogs live in the forest and are always going to be under shade. And that's going to change the temperature, which we talked about as being important for chytrid development. And then it's timing and where they breed. Some frogs may all gather in huge numbers and be crawling all over each other, spreading their disease. And others may be somewhat more solitary in the forest. So those things can change. And it just so happens that the bullfrogs, generally speaking, can withstand the chytrid fungus. Another thing is bullfrogs can live for several years in the tadpole phase. So generally speaking, the further away from the equator you get, the cooler it's going to get, and the longer amphibians will remain in the tadpole phase. And this is important for chytrid because the tadpoles only have keratin on their mouth parts. In the chytrid fungus lives in the keratinized cells. So when they're tadpoles, it'll mess up their their it'll degrade their mouth parts and cause some problems, but it generally won't kill them. So they can remain in the water for several years. So they're basically a permanent source of chytrid infection. And then what happens with a lot of species that have the species that have massive die-offs, it's called post-metamorphic death syndrome, the tadpoles metamorphose, they leave the water, the keratin spreads all over their skin as they become adults. And now the chytrid is all over their skin, and it's enough to kill them. So a lot of the die-offs happen right when they're metamorphosing and leaving the leaving their water body.
1: Very interesting. And and you mentioned, besides the chytrid infection, several other threats to their population and survival numbers.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the main reasons why amphibians are in such trouble, because it's not just one one right. threat, and it's not just as if they only have this threat, or they only have that threat. Sometimes they'll have multiple threats, such as, I went to Valle in Panama, which is a famous site of amphibian die-offs, and they have a um, center where they're captive breeding some of the very endangered amphibians that that used to live up in the mountains that used to be abundant in the mountains until 20, 25 years ago or so. And the problem there is that El Valle is not that far from Panama City. And it's where a lot of the wealthy Panamanians go to buy their second home or vacation. And there's a lot of development there. So on top of the original problem, which was chytrid, now you have chytrid and habitat destruction. So when it's time to try to release these captive bred amphibians into the wild, the chytrid is still there. They, Many of them have not developed significant res- resistance to it. And now they've got the problem with increased habitat destruction. So on the topic of habitat destruction, that is the number one cause of amphibian population declines worldwide. There's 8 billion humans on the planet. We take up space for homes and shopping centers and roads and agriculture and mining and all the all the things that we do to the land and another problem is that the amphibians the amphibians down in the lowlands have the biggest problem with habitat destruction that's because that's where most humans live we like flat places we like to be near the water and our national parks tend to be up high mountains it's hard to build there anyway and mountains look nice so those are the tend to be the protected areas so down low the amphibians don't have so much protected land and there's a lot of humans so habitat destruction definitely the biggest problem and then the other there's four other main threats to amphibians there's pollution and pesticides gravity brings all the bad chemicals down into the water where the amphibians live and breed and amphibians have permeable skin so they can absorb those uh, chemicals quickly global warming climate change so this doesn't matter if you if you have a national park cuz national parks aren't protected from climate change and in certain places like here in Costa Rica you've got cloud forests and as the earth warms up the cloud levels rise and a lot of the amphibians that live in the cloud forests are leaf. They they breed in the leaf litter. They don't go to a pond. They just need moist leaf litter. But if the cloud levels rise, then their habitat dries up. There's also over-harvesting for the pet and food trades. And about a billion frogs are eaten each year, taken from the wild. This is different than the frog farms that I mentioned before. So they're just being taken from the wild and that can cause significant problems. And even in species in the United States, the pig frogs in Florida were, they're probably still eaten, but in a much lesser degree than they used to be. California red-legged frogs were nearly eaten to extinction. In France, it's illegal to eat a native frog because they already ate most of their native frogs. Now they import most of their frogs from Indonesia, which is the world's number one consumer of frogs for food and the number one exporter. So that's a big problem. Taking pets, taking frogs out of the wild for use as pets, that's a problem in Latin America, especially because you've got some really cool looking frogs. Pet owners tend to like really brightly colored species, such as poison dart frogs. So there is a uh, black market trade. People go out and or there's even in some villages, there will be someone who says, Hey, bring, you know, you bring me this frog, I'll give you a few dollars. And then it gets shipped out to Amsterdam or an illegal port, oftentimes in Europe. Europe, United States, and Japan tends, tend to be the biggest importers of frogs or amphibians for use as pets, and including black market illegal pets. And then the last major issue. For amphibians is invasive species. So I was talking about the bullfrogs. The bullfrogs, it's not just that they're, well, it, it's not just that they're spreading diseases. They also have a very large mouth and amphibians are gape limited predators. They're going to eat whatever can, they can fit in their mouth. If they're carn, carnivores as adults, so if it's alive and they can get it in their mouth, they're going to eat it. So these American bullfrogs, they do really well living in lots of places in the world. They escape their farms or they get shipped somewhere and they get set free and they establish populations and have a huge appetite. So bullfrogs are the biggest amphibian threat to amphibians, but there's other species such as trout and fish that get introduced into high mountain lakes and streams, usually for fishing purposes, and also crayfish. Red swamp crayfish native to the southeastern USA cause problems in California and Spain and Portugal. So all these different issues cause have caused amphibians to significantly disappear.
1: And as you're going about with your studies and your research and traveling the world and seeing all of these threats in in real time and then seeing that the numbers of several species of frogs are not rebounding, they're declining worse than they were. Can you give us a little background on how you decided to found Save the Frogs and what the mission is at your organization?
0: Yeah, the mission of Save the Frogs is to protect amphibian populations and to promote a society that respects and appreciates nature and wildlife. And I founded Save the Frogs in 2008, about a year after I finished my PhD research, and it was because I really enjoyed amphibians, and that's where my expertise was and still is, because that was my focus during my PhD research, and I figured, hey, I know a lot about amphibians, There's no, re- and I like amphibians, I like hanging out out in the wild with amphibians so there wasn't a reason to change and also from writing and reading scientific publications i'd notice that most of them would end with a paragraph that gave some suggestions on what needed to take place and i would think yes exactly but who is who's doing this and i realized that generally speaking nobody was was helping to save the amphibians and to implement those actions and I also saw the pretty widespread lack of amphibian awareness worldwide and I I always consider education to be the basis of all successful environmental conservation. So I realized there was no public charity dedicated exclusively to amphibians and I started Save the Frogs and just never, never looked back, never stopped. So been saving frogs uh, within the organization, save the frogs for 13 years, and we've got programs all around the world. We've got volunteers all over the world and talk about what we do.
1: Yeah, well, you have some incredible accomplishments since 2008, and so I was hoping you could touch on a few of them. For instance, I know your organization is working towards habitat restoration. Would you mind touching on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so as I said, habitat destruction is the number one cause of amphibian decline. So if we can protect habitat or restore habitat or create habitat, then that goes a long way to assisting amphibians. And one of the best things that landowners or schools or we'll say land managers can do is to build, build a pond, build a wetland or restore a wetland in the United States and around the world. But Specifically in the United States, a huge amount of our original wetlands have been destroyed. Generally speaking, for agriculture or to just to build on. People don't like wet places. It's hard to make use of wet land. So if you're out driving, you'll be looking around and everything's dry or there's some crops growing and you won't even know, most people won't know that it maybe it used to be a wetland there. So we need more wetlands than. One of the best ways to help amphibians and a lot of other wildlife is to build a wetland because wetlands are so rare these days compared to their uh, you know natural state. So we have educated lots of people about wetlands. We've held wetland construction workshops. We've built wetlands. We've partnered with federal and state and local agencies to build wetlands on, on their land. Uh, we've worked with schools and gone to, gone to visit schools and built wetlands with the students and teachers. And it's definitely one of the best ways. We, we always try to get volunteers out there. And it's one of the best ways to get people interested in the environment. You get them outside. They're physically doing something. It's a tangible result. They can see what they did. It's easy to tell, especially when the amphibians show up, that that it's good for the environment. And so, yeah, I do recommend if anyone out there owns land, or if you are a teacher, or you manage land, or you have some way to, con- if you can convince somebody to build a wetland, ideally help them build it, then that is definitely one of the best things that you can do for the environment. And yeah, we have educational materials on savethefrogs.com, which is our website. And we have Save the Frogs Academy. We have online courses. We have a course on wetlands in there that has info on how anyone can get... The, the best thing is just a small backyard wetland. It doesn't have to be big. A meter or two diameter in most places is enough to get some frogs in there. But we have built wetlands that are 50, 60, 70 feet across. So... If you're able to do that, if you can get an excavator and some heavy equipment in there, then that's great. Some people do have land and they're willing to do that. But you can start small.
1: Well, yeah, that's amazing. And it's great advice, too, that even something, in, you know, depending on how many acres you have on your property, just a simple... Little pond, not only would it make your property more beautiful, but it would attract a lot of uh, frogs and wildlife to the area. And and it's much needed because I grew up in Michigan and now I'm in Florida, and those are both states that are historically wetlands. And as you drive through them, you really can't tell that much anymore. So we definitely need to keep some of these wild spaces or keep some wild space wild and then. Save the habitat, or what do I say? Um, and then recreate some wetlands when possible. So I, I love that advice. And you mentioned about your academy at SavetheFrogs.com. And I was hoping that you could touch on how your organization is helping to educate people about frog conservation. Because as you mentioned earlier, it's so important to not only get kids, but all sorts of people excited about amphibians so they want to help save them
0: yeah education to me is what save the frogs is all about we do build wetlands and we've had legislative actions and a lot of different things but educate it all comes back to education for me and so one of the first things that i did when i started save the frogs was to build the website save the and i've been building it ever since adding new pages to it all the time yesterday i added two pages to it. So it's got about a thousand pages of amphibious information on there. Save the Frogs Academy is online courses. Anyone can go to SaveTheFrogs.com slash academy. Now, first I'll say you don't even have to go into the academy. If you go anywhere on SaveTheFrogs.com, you're going to learn a lot about amphibians. But to organize the content into courses, I built uh, the academy portion of it. And at SaveTheFrogs.com slash Academy, there's a button right at the top. You can get 28 days free full access. So you can go and binge on frog information. When you're done with that, you can either become a member of Save the Frogs, or if you can't afford to donate to get a membership, you can apply for a scholarship. That will get you free full access for a year, or and then you can renew. So everyone's encouraged to go there. Yeah, so we have different courses In there, we also have a lot of downloadable materials like flyers that people can use, post around town, or digital assets that they can share on social media to get the word out. And we we have courses for, as I said, for building wetlands. We've got stuff specifically for students, a course specifically for teachers with lots of educational materials they can use in their class, lots of archived presentations such as from the Save the Frogs. World summits that we've held. The next Save the Frogs World Summit, I'm expecting to be the first week of April 2022. And yeah, so that's another way we educate people. Guest presenters during the World Summit, we have up to where we have it goes on for about 24 straight hours. There's definitely breaks in there, but because we have com- a worldwide community of amphibian conservationists, so nighttime in America, there will be someone from India or Nepal or Bangladesh or somewhere in that area giving presentations. And then we record all that, put that in the academy. We've got a course about dissections to give teachers and students ideas on how to get dissections out of their school. And then we have courses for different countries. Brazil, Costa Rica, Bangladesh, Ecuador, Ghana, India, Mexico, Nepal, New Zealand, Pakistan, Peru, and the USA. So, it's more specific stuff per country. We also have a course on how to be a better fundraiser, which is important for anyone who's going to, you know, be spending time in conservation. And yeah, aside from that, I've given about 400 or so live presentations, visiting schools, community groups, government agencies, and kind of grassroots method, go out, talk to the people, get people interested in amphibians and gain support for the organization, get volunteers. And also the reason I'm in Costa Rica right now, we've been leading eco tours since 2013. And we've done them in Belize, Costa Rica, Ecuador and Peru. And we just led our, our first eco tour post COVID or in the COVID era, we had taken some time off because of the travel restrictions, but uh, we had a group and traveled around Costa Rica for 12 days and that ended last week. And that was really incredible. It, it's such a great place for frogs and for birds and bats and just good hiking, beautiful scenery, volcanoes, beaches, rainforest, cloud forest. So yeah, Birds, I,
1: monkeys. Yes. It's yeah. Like,
0: monkeys. <laughs> yeah. I, inv- I invite, I invite anyone out there. If you're interested in Costa Rica or frogs or ecotourism. Um, and yeah, as I said, it's not just frogs. Like it, if you're just into nature, you're going to see it during the tour. Cause we go out, we go out a few times a day. So frogs wow. mostly at night, but everything else during the day. And, yeah, we'll be back here in June. We have a family's trip. So if you want to bring your family cool. in in yeah. june twenty twenty two it's a family's trip. And then in uh, July, adults will say eighteen, eighteen, and up, no kids on that second trip. and that'll that one kind
1: of sounds like my dream right now, but I, I think I'm in the family boat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. We, we, we used to not, it would be like, Hey, whoever wants to come, but then we'd have requests. Hey, will you have a family's trip? And then we'd have requests. Hey, do you have a trip that won't have kids? So we decided to give people the option for
1: 2022. Oh, for sure. You're preaching to the choir over here. I, I, I totally understand. And now you mentioned volunteers. What type of volunteer opportunities do you have? Are they just listed on your website or through social media? What might they entail?
0: Well, we have a page savethefrogs.com slash volunteers. and so I encourage anyone to go there. My number one thing for anybody who wants to volunteer for Save the Frogs, first, educate yourself. So spend some time on the website. The reason I've put so much information on the website is that so that people could educate themselves. And so I say, Spend some time getting to know about frogs and getting to know about what Save the Frogs does. And ideally, you would arrive at a point on your own where you know what you want to do because you know about frogs, you know about your personal skills and interests, and you know what Save the Frogs does. So maybe you have the thought, oh, it would be really cool if I helped Save the Frogs do this. That would be the ideal kind of volunteer who came to me and they already had some idea about how they'd want to help. Because if someone just says, hey, I want to volunteer, I need to get to know you and your strengths and your skills and your desires. And that takes some time. So do do your own do your own work first. And then yeah, check out save the slash volunteers. And we do have some listings up there. Anyone with actual professional expertise, that's gonna be ideal such as if you are a graphic designer or you're a professional journalist and or writer or science communicator or you're a high quality artist but there there's plenty of other things like one i have a position up there it's um executive assistant you know just someone willing to help me do tasks that may not be that exciting but need to get done so yeah. You know, if they're truly dedicated to helping, then I can certainly find a volunteer position that they um, should ideally learn from and be able to help out with, you know, help me save the frogs.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to keep my eye on that uh, volunteer position to go to the adults only eco tour in June. <laughs> or July. Adults only in July, July, 2022. Yeah. Yeah, I'll volunteer for that one. So awesome. Oh man, you got, you got, you got me thinking over here. Hmm. I have, I have some skills. What can I do now? Dr. Krieger on a little bit more serious note, how has COVID-19, as you mentioned earlier, impacted frog conservation and then also your organization?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think it's had, a significant impact on us it did stop my public presentations live presentations It it stopped save the frogs day events at least going out because we on save the frogs day which i haven't even talked about save the frogs day we get people to go out into their communities and oftentimes hold giving presentations so those didn't happen and the eco tours we had to postpone So those are the major issues for Save the Frogs. But as far as like we we didn't get hit that hard financially because we've we for many years we've been we've had a good online presence. So it's not like a brick and mortar place and everything shuts down and there's no income. So financially, we were fine from covid and for for a while more people were online so like Let's the first yeah. yeah the, the first world about- summit that we had was like right when everyone was like everyone's brand new to zoom i'd been using zoom for years so <laughs> You're we an had old huge oh i love it yeah we had a huge turnout for that so that was good sure. as far as other people re- researchers i'm sure it's affected people's ability to travel to places but as far as the amphibians themselves i, I don't have any hard data on it but i think there were less people out it you know there was less pollution cuz there was less traffic and less less air flight and then there were less people out in wild places so i'm sure a lot of places amphibians and wildlife in general probably did pr- did all right
1: yeah yeah and now for somebody that's listening to this podcast that is really interested in amphibian biology or conservation do you have any advice for them on how to get started and where they should go and what they should do?
0: Yeah, I do. I would get started by going to savethefrogs.com slash jobs. And we kind of compiled different resources. So I, I just open up the page right now and it says volunteering is step one. So it, in the world of environmental careers there there's a lot of competition there's not a lot of money out there in in environmental careers so generally speaking i think pretty much everyone starts out by volunteering you're gonna get some some real world knowledge and you're gonna look a lot better to a potential employer so i think everyone should start out by volunteering and we also have a page on career advice so that is different we've got a listing of different websites of use we've got videos of me and other people talking about how to get and how to get we'll say a step ahead in your environmental career and we do have listings of environmental jobs so that's where i'd start save the frogs.com slash jobs in general let's see volunteer try to figure out exactly what you're interested in the the world of environmental conservation is a lot more than just field research that's one thing sure. but there's environmental I, yeah, yeah there's environmental communications like you're doing you got a podcast so yes. you, what what are your strengths do you like technology can you build can you build a website build your own website i'll say that to anyone build your own website about whatever environmental thing you're interested in and get some experience with that. Environmental law, environmental policy, there's all different branches of environmental work. So try to explore those, see which one is most interest to you. Volunteer, become an intern, take a take a low paying job if you can get paid anything, just as long as it's with something where that you're learning and getting experience. And then and if I, you want, yeah, go on.
1: Well, and honestly, for me, some of the volunteer jobs that I took early on I I didn't really love them and that helped show me it didn't necessarily show me what I wanted to do but it showed me what I didn't want to do and that's really good knowledge too right and that's why it's always important to volunteer first to see if you if this is something you want to move forward with and it's just they're just so they're so helpful along your path I think
0: yeah and I'll also say, You don't have to go to you don't you don't have to get a master's degree or a PhD, but if you're inspired to do so and you have a good opportunity, then that may be a good thing. And I'll say with that, especially for doing a PhD, like that's years of your life, you're about to dedicate to something, make sure that you get along with your supervisor, your potential supervisor, do some research on them, make sure that, they, that they're that they an expert in the topic of interest to you and talk to some of their, their uh, students or former students and just make sure and try to get an honest assessment of them. Like, hey, are they easy to work with? Will they give you time? Like if you go and want to meet with them for 15 minutes a week or something, are they going to be there for you? If, if you need them to review a paper, are they going to do that? And cause that will, that will significantly affect your experience. So if you have a good supervisor, then you will be happier and you'll get more done and you'll learn more and you'll be better off.
1: Yeah. And if somebody is listening, likes frogs or is interested in maybe not volunteering, but just learning more about your organization What is the best way they can help share and support the incredible work you're doing at Save the Frogs?
0: I would go to SaveTheFrogs.com. You can download any of the images there that say Save the Frogs and share them. Like we've got art all over our site. We, We have a Save the Frogs art contest. I actually will be announcing the winner tomorrow. It goes year round. So whenever you're listening to this podcast, if you're an artist or one, go ahead, enter the contest, and yeah, go find some piece of art on the Save the Frogs site and post it up on social media, tell people why you love frogs, and give a link to savetheprogs.com would be cool. We're at Save the Frogs on all the major social media, so facebook.com slash Save the Frogs instagram at save the frogs twitter at save the frogs pinterest at save the frogs youtube.com save the frogs we have a discord community so i encourage anyone who uses discord go find us save the frogs.com discord we'll get you there it's free and you can chat with and meet other interact with other save the frogs supporters so i definitely encourage you to do that and let's see yeah as i said in save the frogs academy there is a there's a course there called flyers and you can download flyers and post them around town we also have a save the frogs gift center uh, we've got sh- save the frog shirts stickers posters mugs hats all earrings all kinds of things save save the frogs a lot of it says save the frogs on it good conversation starter and it's all colorful nice nice looking frog themed merchandise so and all proceeds support our worldwide amphibian conservation efforts.
1: Awesome. And you mentioned Save the Frog Day. So can you touch on that a little bit?
0: Yeah. Save the Frogs Day is the world's largest day of amphibian conservation and education. The world's largest day of education and conservation action. It's the last Saturday of April every year. I started Save the Frogs Day because I thought it would be a great way to get teachers and politicians involved and educated. So Save the Frogs Day has been officially recognized by the states of Michigan and Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, the the mayors of Washington, D.C., Tampa, Florida, Santa Cruz, Vancouver, and some other places. So it's been successful in that respect with the politicians, but it's been especially successful with schools. So it's a great way to get teachers involved. And even even without the teachers, a lot of kids just hold some kind of event at their school. And we've got scientists who lead frog walks, take people out into nature to introduce them to their local frog fauna. Research groups, student groups at universities go out for field expeditions and focus on frogs. Lots of ways to get involved. So I encourage definitely if you're a teacher or a professor, or involved with some kind of environmental group, hold a Save the Frogs Day event. You can go to savethefrogs.com slash day, and we've got lots of information and ideas for you. And definitely also, please register your event so that we know what has taken place.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Dr. Krieger, thank you so much for being here today and getting us all excited about Save the Frogs and Frog Conservation. I want to keep this conversation going so we can stay in touch about the Save the Frogs World Summit, Save the Frogs Day, and of course, those ecotours. Don't leave me behind on those ecotours. Yeah, you're invited. Yes. I'm going to help promote a lot of that on on our social media platforms. And to all of our listeners, right now, as long as you're not driving, go to savethefrogs.com or at Save the Frogs on any of your favorite social media platforms. Give them a like, give them a follow, stay informed, make sure and tell your friends and family about how cool and how important frogs are. We've got to do this together. It takes a village and the world needs us not only to save itself, but also to save frogs. And they are a very, very integral part of our ecosystem. And right now they are not doing well. And it has to do with our human actions. So help educate yourself and others around you because frogs are just the coolest, like Dr. Krieger said. So say the frogs.com, check them out. And Dr. Krieger, I am super excited about our new frog connection. And I hope you'll stay in touch with all creatures podcast.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to come back anytime. And also, I promised you another frog call. Oh my so, gosh.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: That's a Southern orange eyed tree frog. That's the frog on the save the frogs logo and one of my favorite frogs.
1: Oh my gosh. I, I think I'm going to have to open with that. I'll put it at the beginning and the end of this podcast. Cause that was music to my ears. So excellent.
0: All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for having me on Angie and good luck with your podcast and Uh, congratulations to you for all of your podcast success.
1: Well, thank you. Take care. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.